0: Baby, hear what else I gotta say. You got your radio turned down too low. Turn it up. Ow. You can't judge sugar by looking at the king. You can't judge a woman by looking at her man.
1: You can't judge a sister by looking at her brother. You can't. By, looking at the hey guys, and welcome to Kaisis, a podcast about living our new life in the New Covenant Age. Our podcast name comes from two Greek words, kaine kitesis, which mean new creation. I'm your co-host, Osvaldo Valdez, and let me welcome Pastor Todd Bordeaux. Oh, how
0: am I doing, baby? Oh, All right, Osvaldo, are we ready to talk about women in the early church and uh, in the Greek world?
1: Yes, I think it's going to be an exciting topic for our listeners today.
0: Yeah, we mentioned last week that this would be the last one, but we're going to do two more, this one and then next week, because there's just not enough time to cover what we need to cover today. So we broke it up into two. So next week will be the last one, and then we'll take our Christmas break, if we can call it that. Does that sound good? That sounds great. All right. Well, let's do a quick review review and get right into it. We looked last time at the Greek world and their view of women, that they were inferior creatures to men. Uh, They were property as far as the wives were considered property as much as the animals or um, coins. And so they didn't have any legal rights. And uh, they were simply considered lesser humans. So their life, especially if they were married, was limited to staying in the house and uh, serving the husband, obeying the husband. Mm. And, and it was a pretty sad look last week at what it was like. So given that background, the people should understand how revolutionary in Christ there is no male or female, as Paul wrote. Yeah. That, that was just, would have been completely bizarre to their world. And so the status of women certainly changed with the coming of Christ. And you cannot reduce that. Some people like to say, well, that's only in relation to justification. That there is no male and female as far as how one is saved. They're both saved or justified the same way. No, just like there's no Jew or Greek in the church, that includes um, status, that includes giftedness, um, value, importance. All those things that separated men and women have now been brought together in Christ. So when we look at marriage, in some ways, the coming of Christ returned marriage to the pre-fall state. And Jesus says that, doesn't he? This was the way it was at the beginning. Yeah. Where man and w- man and woman loved each other, he loved his wife as his own flesh. There wasn't a hierarchy of authority. We we saw that in Genesis. They both told to take dominion, and the woman is to help the man. So together they take dominion, each using their own gifts, skills, etc. And so when Adam says, "You're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh," that's a union. He didn't say, "You're my servant." said, you are my partner. And so hierarchy is introduced in Genesis 3 after the fall, where God says to Eve, he shall rule over you. And therefore, redemption returns us to the original purpose of marriage. So we sort of stopped last time looking at Greek life for your average woman. Any uh, opening thoughts on last week's episode, Oswald?
1: Yeah, I just like to remind our readers. I mean, what we're trying to do here is contextualize the New Testament, and I think that's going to be super helpful to have in mind. And and I think that, like like you said, the the review what we're trying to capture is that I mean, a lot of the the philosophers thought that um, women, like you said, were like a sub subhuman, even the best ones. And we even reviewed some quotes from the Stoics who who some even considered like proto like the first feminists, you know, because they thought that women had. Equal access to to virtue, you know, intelligence and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I mean, they 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 said really really weird and harsh things, saying that you know it's it's ideally, man is superior, and yeah. that man shouldn't behave like women because women are the inferior um, species, almost like that. So you know, it's it's, it's gross, it's, it's harsh. However, that that would that sheds a lot of light and a lot of uh, perspective to the New Testament writers when they write about how Christians men and women should behave towards one another.
0: Yeah, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. It's very important we're going to look at some verses that we keep in mind the cultural context. Yeah. And that's that's going to open up some verses that have been very confusing to some. So, but when we look at the church today or throughout history, there are not only two views. Some people think there are only two views, complementarianism and egalitarianism. Of whether there's still male authority, but there are actually many views. So you have some who would say from creation, there is a superior and inferior. Um, and they would say not necessarily in, in, uh, you know, ontology or identity, but one is created to lead and the other is created to, to serve, to follow. Some say there is a different ontology and she's actually made to follow. Hmm. So you have different views there. Some some Christians think Aristotle was onto something, that he was actually reading natural law correctly. And others would say, like we would, that he was seeing things with his sinful, narcissistic eyes. who He exalted himself and the male. And so you have some who would say that women are not meant to lead men at all that it's simply in the creation itself. And so that would include not just the home and the church, but politics, business, that women simply are not created to lead. There is a superiority of men as far as the call and the gift to lead. Now, if you're going to say that's based in creation and in the nature of man and woman, one of the problems is you have to carry that into the eschaton. Yeah. Because in the new heavens and earth, we're still men and women.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We don't change who we are. And so if if there's, there's going to be responsibilities and things to do, then you're carrying that subordination. Now, there are some that actually say that. Wow. That that will happen in the eschaton. Now, there are others who say that the Bible doesn't say anything about women as far as in politics or... You know, they can be CEOs of company, but really it's just in marriage that the husband is the leader. Now, some take that to the extreme where the husband actually has complete authority over his wife. He even disciplines his wife. This would be more extreme, but we've certainly heard stories of this. And others, of course, wouldn't go to that extreme. They would just say that man is given, the husband is the responsibility to make the decisions. And when it comes to the church, some say that women shouldn't be ordained officers because of creation. So women are simply created gullible. They lack the toughness uh, that needed to be a pastor. So there's something Mm -hmm. lacking or different in their natures that just isn't meant to lead. Um, Others take the representative principle In other words, Jesus was a man, and the the officers who represent them should be men. It's sort of the eye test. When you're listening and watching the eye and ear test, there's a connection between Jesus as a man and those he sends as ordained officers to represent him. So that view says that women, women could just as well preach and teach and can be gifted in the same way, man, but it's simply not their calling. Mm. So some argue that creationally they're not made to others are saying, I, you know, I've heard men say, I don't believe women should preach, but when I've heard women preach, they do a better job than most men. Yeah. And so that would be the view that it's not about how they're made, but that Jesus was a man. And then there are those who simply say, I don't need to know why God said the husband is the leader and pastors should be men. So I don't need to know why God said it. God says it. And then I just do it and I just follow it. And of course, others will say, well, if you don't have a reason, you won't hold to it very long.
1: Hmm.
0: So there are a lot of different views. It's, It's a pendulum and then you have some who say creation did not introduce a superiority and inferiority as far as order, but the fall did. And so in Genesis three, when, you know, Eve is told that your husband will rule you, that's introduced because of the fall. And, and so that order needs to be honored in this life. It won't be in the eschaton. And so this tends to be a softer view, sort of. You'll hear people with this view say, because of sin, because of differences, um, somebody has to make final decisions. There has to be some type of authority. And so the husband is given that authority. He's the decision maker. So he doesn't really have authority over his wife. He's not telling her what to do. He has authority in, in the marriage. And so, you know, R.C. Sproul is fond of this view, and he'll say things like, Two or three times a year, I have to make the final decision when Mm -hmm. we can't decide on something. But besides that, we're always deciding as a team.
1: Yeah.
0: And so this is sort of um, egalitarian in practice. They they tend to be partners, except every once in a while.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, um, the problem with that. And I appreciate the attempt to find a softer middle ground to live as partners. Um, and, and you know, the wife may even say, "I like when he makes a final decision; it just takes the stress off me." So they're actually he's actually serving her that way if if she she agrees and likes it. The problem with this is is not really the practice; it's trying to support it exegetically. Yeah, because those on the other side, particularly the patriarchalists, they're going to be sharp enough to see a problem here. Because in Ephesians 5, um, the connection is that as the church submits to Christ, um, so the wife submits to her husband. And so that doesn't mean that when the church and Christ can't make a decision, Christ makes the final decision. (laughs) Right?
1: Yeah.
0: You know, if you're going to take the metaphor to mean authority, well, Christ has supreme authority over us. He rules us. Yeah. So if that's how you're going to understand it that headship means authority the middle ground doesn't really make sense. And so either you're going to have that the the metaphor it does not refer to authority or you're going to have to go with real authority but but again even if they're inconsistent that's always good if you know they're living in a way that's you know helping each other and partners in marriage And then finally, you have the egalitarian position that there is no subordination in their home or church of men to women. That's how fallen man thinks, but that's not how Christians should live. Um, And so a woman would be able to, you know, have any type of of responsibility in the church that a man does. And in marriage, they, they work as partners. There's no one authority over the other. So there's a lot of differences and overlap, you know, between all these. It's kind of complicated. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know what I appreciate you doing is, you know, is providing is showing that yeah. the issue is not black or white; rather, it's a spectrum. And I know that in your experience, I mean, when you talk to kind of one side. Of the spectrum namely the patriarchists, you know they usually have very strong personalities and they almost give the impression that even amongst their groups you know there is there is uh uh they, they're there they're a united front and, and that's simply not the case you know like you said i mean there's patriarchal uh, patriarchalists like rc spro who simply say you know what and like you said i only make the final decision uh, sometimes, uh, but mostly we work together, others uh, making, uh, like you said, other patriarchalists find their grounding on nature itself, saying that the men and women are ontologically distinct. I mean, you, you, you realize that this is really a spectrum. This is not a black or white issue. And um, and, and that, that's really helpful in the conversation because, um, <laughs> you know, because, or at least for me, you know, it, it makes me feel like, okay, there, there there's a lot more nuanced here. Than, than what the what the louder voices out there are trying uh, are are depicting it as, you know. Yeah, and
0: we'll talk a little bit about this next week. But those on the top or bottom would see it as black and white. But when you look at and and let me just say real quickly, I don't think Spro would be rightly labeled a patriarchalist, but he does believe in some authority in marriage. But I just don't want to get uh, emails that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, great, no. clarify. <laughs>
0: okay, so. Now that leaves us with a problem. And the problem is those few New Testament passages that seem to treat women as inferior, that actually seem at first glance to agree with the Greeks. I took a walk with Cheryl last night and I appreciated. She said, you know, when you think about the entire New Testament as far as first the Gospels and how Jesus treated women, it's hard to imagine that one or two or three verses in the letters change everything we've learned from Christ. Wow. And I think that's a great point. Great perspective, yeah. Because Jesus treated women as equals. The only difference we see is the apostles were men. But besides that, we don't see any difference in how he treated them, um, how he spoke to them. He didn't speak of different gender roles or, you know, he didn't speak of a, um, he just didn't, he talked to everyone the same. Hmm. And and uh, he taught them the same theology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So sometimes I think we, I think Cheryl's right. We just pass over the Gospels and jump to these three or four or five passages and say, "Aha!" But that's a yeah. lot of uh, that's a lot of information in the Gospels that we need yeah. to remember. So again, it leaves us with those few passages which seem to treat women as inferior. We're going to look at three today, and then we'll look at the two, probably the big two, next week. But the key is, as you just said, remember Greek culture, because mm-hmm. that will open up these verses. So the first one is Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands. Now, I've taught on this elsewhere enough times, that I'm just going to give a brief summary. People can find it in other places. But does this mean a husband is in charge of his wife? Is that what submit means, to obey? because Christ is in charge of his church. Is that what the metaphor means? But whenever a metaphor is given in scripture, we can only use it the way the metaphor is used, not in every way. Hmm. So husbands are not told to love their wives in every way Christ did. Husbands cannot sanctify their wives. They, They cannot die for their sins. And so what they're told is simply love their wife. And sacrifice for her as Christ sacrificed for the church, as he gave himself up for her. That's the metaphor. The love is the metaphor, sacrificial love. It's not, it doesn't mean in every single way that Christ relates to his church. Um, husbands relate to your wives and then vice versa. So there's nothing here about ruling. You cannot stretch a metaphor beyond the way it's used. Yeah. And submit cannot mean um, obey here. By the way, it's not the word, the Greek word for obey, which is given for children to obey their parents. It's submit, upotasso, which is a different meaning when it comes to uh, Christians with Christians. And we know that from verse 21 because we're told to submit to one another in the church. And so, submit, the word submitting, comes from verse 21. It's not even in the Greek in verse 22. It's carried over from verse 21 and now applied to the marriage. So whatever you apply in verse 22 has to be how it's used in verse 21, not a completely different meaning all of a sudden. And so what does submitting mean when it comes to Christians in verse 21? Well, it means defer to one another, serve one another. Now in the church, that doesn't mean that they're in charge of us or we're in charge of them, There's no hierarchy in verse 21. Now let's go back to um, the Greek culture, and that's why it'll really help here. Why are wives told this? Why aren't they told to love their husbands? Well, of course they're supposed to love their husbands. That's a given. But why are they told to submit? Well, Paul's dealing with Christian marriage here, unlike uh, First Timothy, excuse me, First Peter three. He's dealing with Christian marriage to believers. remember the Greek world. The wife was property. A strong husband kept his wife in order. She did whatever he says. Now, imagine if Christians begin to apply, Christian husbands, what Paul is saying. You cherish and love her as your own flesh, sacrificing Mm -hmm. for her. If a man did that in Greek culture, he would be considered very weak.
1: Or effeminate, almost.
0: Yeah, effeminate, emasculated. Uh, We can even see that in the Greek writings. Men were criticized for not keeping their wife in order, like he might keep his children or animals. And so if he treated her as an equal, he would be looked upon as weak. And so given that context, it makes sense why Paul would say, wives, respect your husbands as they do this. The world will not respect them. You make sure you respect them Mm -hmm. as they love you. Of course, they're still to love their husbands just because Paul doesn't say it there. And and of course, husbands submit, defer to their wives, because in verse 21, we do all that. But the cultural context helps us know why Paul is speaking this way. So the head-body metaphor is most often used in the Bible that refers to union. And that's exactly how it's used here in Ephesians 5. As your own flesh, love her as your own flesh union. That's how it's used, for example, in First Corinthians 12. Remember that metaphor of the head and body in the church of different gifts? It doesn't say the head is in charge of the body. It says you're all connected, so you need each other. Yeah. So even when Paul uses this metaphor elsewhere, it's not about authority. It's about connectedness and union. And so it really doesn't say... That, you know, now I I admit that this is probably a minority view in the history of the church. But, you know, there are a lot of other views in the history of the church we've talked about that needed to change. So give it 100 years. Maybe it won't be a minority view.
1: (laughs) But (laughs) any thoughts on Ephesians 5? Uh, Yeah, I mean, a few things. I think think you, you properly note that verse 21, I think, is key. And 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 I feel like a lot of people don't don't understand the weight of that passage and how, and how it qualifies everything that follows afterwards. I mean, look look at the language: submit to one another, right? So this is not a one way ordeal, wives to husbands. It's it's a reciprocal appeal, right? And and I mean, and he applies that same principle between you know father and sons, and and, and masters and slaves. I mean, like you said. They're, they're living now in the kingdom of God, going back to, you know, the overarching theme of this podcast. They're living now in the kingdom of God. How then are they supposed to live in a manner that's completely different to this perverted and twisted world? Yeah. And I think he summarizes it. Pro- like you said, he summarizes it properly. Submit to one another. On what basis? I mean, when we read the overarching theme of Ephesians, I mean, we've all been united in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile. You know, we all partake of one spirit, one father, one baptism. I mean, how else can you? What, what other... What better response is there than to say, submit to one another, you know? Um, secondly, and I think y- 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 you pointed it out that it's, we have to have in mind, you know, the Greek culture of the time. Don't you find it interesting that, you know, when Paul says, uh, of, of wives submit to your husbands, I mean, that at least on the, if he's meaning it in the terms of like obeying and stuff like that, like, you know like a, like a slave to his master it would seem very redundant you think that would be right. given you know in, in Greek culture unless he's trying to say something else and when you're reading ephesians as a whole and when you're contextualizing ephesians within the overarching you know salvation history we are now in the new covenant and in the, in the kingdom of god then these 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 verses have a completely different meaning than 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 what others have um explained, but like you said it it is unfortunately a minority approach, but like you said, there is hope I think in the next few years of sh- shedding a different light to to these passages
0: yeah, it's interesting that the Greek word for authority when it comes to marriage is only used once, and it's in first Corinthians seven where the husband has authority over the wife's body and the wife has authority over the husband's body,
1: yeah it, that's that, it. it like That's Pastor, like, we have to understand, and, like, I hope our audience understands how ridiculous that would sound to, like, the Greek world. Authority? woman over a man? And, I mean, but once again, Paul is operating, you know, in this new eschatological age. I mean, we are in the kingdom of God, which is why he's able to use this language. Exactly. That's a great point.
0: All right. The next verse is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So some here say, aha, this proves the inferiority of women. They are the ones, not men, told to keep silent in church. Yeah. And so that's sort of, even though we have the entire, all four gospels, nothing like this, in this verse, it's sort of the aha, but. Yeah. Let's let's look closely at the context, and then remember also the Greek world. And so Paul cannot mean that women cannot speak in church in general, because in first first Corinthians eleven, he approved of women prophesying and praying. Mm-hmm. He says, as long as they wear a head covering, head covering. Paul cannot contradict himself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He doesn't say three chapters later, okay, what I said before, forget. I've got <laughs> a, a new rule. Yeah. So Paul is dealing with a very particular situation here. So let's look at the context. From 26 to 40, the context is order in the assembly. And what's interesting is three times in this section, Paul instructs Christians to be quiet. And the first two are not gender-specific at all, so it includes men. So verse verses 27 and 28, If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at least, or at the most, three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. There it is. And so women are not the only one told to keep quiet. There's someone else here told to keep quiet. Now tongues mean foreign languages. And Paul is saying, if there's no one to interpret it for the rest of the church, don't speak in tongues because it's not edifying the body at all. No one's going to understand. You're simply showing off your gift. And so if there's not an interpreter to interpret that language for everyone else, remain quiet. Hmm. Verses 29 and 30 is the second one. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So now he speaks to those using prophecy. Don't interrupt the other prophets. You speak one at a time. And if you're tempted, be quiet. Be silent. Yeah. Okay, now we have the second one, where mostly men are told to be silent in the church. Now we come to verse 34. Women, and it's better translated wives, the same Greek word, because it talks later about going to your husbands. So it assumes that these are married women. Keep quiet in the church, but ask your husbands at home. Now the two others were specific situations and the same here. And this is where knowing about the Greek culture helps. Women were uneducated for the most part. They weren't allowed to get an education. And so here they are in the church. They're, they're allowed to ask questions. And it's certainly possible that some of them, especially if their husbands who were educated were teaching, were simply dominating the church with questions. They may want to understand every term. And so Paul says, instead of dominating the meeting with questions and forgetting that others are there too to learn, ask them at home. Hmm. So this is not a general principle, just like the other two, that there's certain people that can never speak in church or wives always have to ask their husbands first a question. Um, there are three specific situations that are culturally relevant to that particular time. Now, the general principle applies to all of us. That's why these are there. And the general principle is that our Christian gatherings, when we come together to worship, are for edification. They're not to show off. They're not to dominate. But they're for the edification of everyone. So it's not about just me and what I want or what I want to show off. That's the theme running through it, um, that don't forget everyone else and their needs and only focus on your needs. That's the principle that applies even today without prophecy, tongues, um, et cetera. So understanding the Greek world, but also looking at the three times he says, be quiet, really opens the passage,
1: don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And... (laughs) And, and I feel like, like you said, First Corinthians 11 gets neglected, you know, um, because Paul recognizes that even amidst the congregation, there is active prophesying and praying from the part of women, right? Meaning that they were also in part of the spirit and also led the, by the spirit to say, you know, certain sort of things amid the congregation. But his rebuke wasn't that they were prophesying and praying, rather that they were doing it in a disorderly manner, you know, without head coverings or whatnot, Um disrupting you know social cultural norms and probably causing chaos within and potentially you know outside the the church uh outside of the church you know and and kind of underlying a lot of paul's thought is you know when it comes to christian living is living quietly so any form of chaos not even towards just women specifically but he rebukes any form of lifestyle that kind of disrupts you know the general social order of things uh because that usually gives a bad reputation for for christians when when he thinks the opposite should be done but but I think, once again, this is another example and another another passage where, like, it's not black or white. You know, like, it's easy to read First uh, Corinthians 14 and say, "Aha, uh-huh, you know, this is it. Woman, you know, be quiet, shut up, go home, tell your husbands. But then in 1 Corinthians 11, it's in complete contrast to that, where he commends women. He, he recognizes that that is an active role that women have in Corinth. So it's, it's simply not black or white. And I understand, you know, like you said, the patriarchalist brothers, they have passages they could go on, but I just feel like, Passages like 1 Corinthians 11 just often get neglected and kicked out of the picture, too.
0: Yeah. All right, we're going to do one more passage for today. Then we'll look at the two next week that probably are the most used. But 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, you know, begins, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands that you may win them without a word. You know, Sarah is given as an example who called Abraham Lord. And she obeyed him um, with hope, having hope. This is usually used to say, this proves that at least in the home, at least in the home, husbands have authority over their wives. The husband is the master and the wife is the servant. Now, again, let's look at the context. He begins in the same way. Well, what does he mean? Well, you know, back in chapter two, he speaks about submit yourself to every human institution. And then he begins to list all the human institutions, the government. Um, if you have a master, you know, about half the church was slaves back then. Yeah. And then we come to 1 Peter 3 in the same way. And so um, Peter is not approving of slavery, and he's not approving of government that persecutes and has overreach. But that's the reality of the world they were in. And so in the Greek world, the husband ruled the wife and she was property, but Peter's not approving of that. He's simply saying, you know, if the wife becomes a Christian, um, you have two options. You can rebel and, and divorce, or you can stay with him, even if he sort of looks at you in that Greek way that you belong to him and you can win him by your behavior. So he's saying, slaves, do not be part of these slave revolts. Think of Spartacus. Um, you know, there were many slave revolts, very violent. Do not be part of those revolts. Submit. In um, the same way, wives, even though it's a rough system, this is the Greek world, just because you're a Christian now, don't abandon your, well, your husband and children. They would have mm-hmm. to abandon their children, by the way, because they didn't have any custody rights. And so a Christian wife who had the option, if she did rebel, she could be beaten. Uh, if she left him, she could starve. There weren't many options that were moral. Or she, she could submit to the Greek institution of marriage. That was the other option. And so Paul, I mean, excuse me, Peter says, why don't you be an evangelist? Um, try to win him over. Not Not that she can change his heart, but You know, try to be a good witness to him. Yeah. And instead of violating the Greek sensibilities and, you know, trying to resist, um, just, just be a good wife is what he's saying. And that would, that would, um, be implicit that when he asks you, if he does open, if he is open to the gospel, then explain it to him, teach him. Yeah. And then Sarah is called an example for these women with non Christian husbands, Greek husbands. Sarah called Abraham Lord and hoped in God in and, and obeying him. Now this raises a question, when did Sarah call him Lord? Because she never really addresses him at Lord as Lord in, in, in the entire book of Genesis. She does mention Lord once, but he's not present. And when did Sarah obey him? And so commentators have a lot of different views on that. But the key here is the word hope, that follow Sarah who had hope. Hmm. And so when it says Sarah called him Lord, that term did not mean master like a slave because when when Rebecca speaks to a slave, she says, my Lord. So Lord was a term of respect.
1: Hmm.
0: Whenever you use that for another person, it didn't mean you were under his authority. It means you were showing respect. But the the question to ask is, what is Peter's connection with obedience and hope? Now, it wasn't, Sarah, if you obey your husband, then God will save you. So hope in that promise. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not the gospel. That's the law. And so whenever the word hope is used in the New Testament, it's always tied to the gospel.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a gospel promise. And so where did Sarah hear the gospel and then obey her husband? And, and by doing it, showed hope in the gospel. Well, it's at the very beginning when God appeared to Abraham and said, go to Canaan and I will bless you. In that typology, we have a gospel promise. And so Abraham would say to Sarah, you know, Abraham lived in the patriarchal wood, would say, follow me to Canaan. Now, Sarah had a choice. She could stay with her family. She could have abandoned him because she did have relatives. Because she had no idea where he was going or in hope. That's not hope in Abraham. It's hope in God. It's hope in the gospel. She followed him. And so Peter's point is wives with non Christian husbands, trust the Lord, continue to hope in eternal life. Don't abandon your husband because he's not a believer, but be an example to him and don't turn around the sensibilities of the Greek world and you know I'll lecture him or do things that are really difficult for him but be be a good example so submit to the system even though it's not god's system but it's it's the greek system don't rebel and keep an eye on christ's return for your glory now this passage is often used to say well then uh, these non-christian men however they treated their wives she's called to submit and that's ridiculous hmm. because paul tells us in in chapter 13 of Romans to submit to government authorities. Yet Paul's always fleeing government persecution,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, throughout throughout Acts and the epistles, he's fleeing persecution. He's going from one city to the next when they come after him. So submit doesn't mean you cannot flee abuse. Yeah. Or or Paul's in sin. He's always fleeing. So it would assume if your husband starts abusing you, and you have to flee, then you can flee. But if he's simply because he's not a Christian and he's you know treating you like like property, if that's all it is, and that is difficult, that is the system. Don't abandon your family. That's what Paul's saying. It has nothing to do with abuse um, there. And then in verse seven, women are called the weaker vessel. and in the, in the context of the Greek world, well obviously everyone knew what that meant, right? Mm -hmm. women were defenseless. They were disadvantaged. They did not have any rights. Men, husbands could take advantage and do whatever they wanted. And there's nothing they could do. And so the husbands are told, do not take advantage of her because she's a weaker vessel. She's disadvantaged in society. She's uh, physically weaker than you, but honor them as equals fellow heirs. Wow. And so summary, and we'll close with that. There's a few New Testament verses, four or five, which suggest the Greeks may have been right, that there is a male superiority over women. But when you look at them closely, uh, they really don't hold up very well. If you mm-hmm. look at the context as well as the Greek world. Now that leaves the big two, first Timothy two on women in the church and then Titus two. On women uh, not working outside the home, so we'll save those and then sort of wrap this up, dealing with all this, um, you know, with different views next week. But any closing thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I wanted to make just a quick comment about the first Peter. You know, and I think you 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 mentioned that you know it, it, we have to be careful how far we take metaphors, because if you were to ask, you know, the, a patriarchalist and, and and describe his relationship you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure his wife doesn't call him Lord. So even then, you know, the metaphor falls short and, and he does probably take an interpretive approach where he would say, well, it's not literal. And then what, what, what Peter's trying to communicate is one, two, three, right? So, I mean, you, you, I, they, they, I guess they, I, I could see at least a, a patriarchal is arguing, you know, that we're uh, we we're, we're not taking the the passage at its face value that it's obvious but I mean you can easily tell them you're not taking it either you know because I'm pretty sure your wife doesn't call you Lord or whatnot and like you right. just mentioned I mean the whole thing points a completely different direction or, other than authority right but I mean but once again I, I think that it's important to have in mind you know we've've we've been we've been repeating this you know have the Greek world in mind but secondly, Ha- have in mind that the new Testament authors are operating from the standpoint that the kingdom of God has come, that the spirit has been poured on both men and women. And that consequently affects, you know, the- our relationships between, you know, father, sons, master and slaves and male and female women and wife. And I, and I- and I think that that has to be in the back of our minds always when we come to a to these texts and this weekend, the ones we're going, we're going to come in across to next week.
0: Yeah. The, the, uh, the epistles are not agreeing with the pagan Greek world and yeah. their views of men and women. They were um, really opposite of them, and that's that's a really important point you made.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, well, that's a good place to end, and we'll wrap up our second season next week. Thanks for your help, Osvaldo.
1: Absolutely. You can't judge the by looking in the pond you can't judge right by looking at
0: the wrong You can't judge one by looking at the other You can't judge a book by looking at the cover Oh,
1: can't you see? Oh, you can't judge me Ain't hey, like a farmer, I'm a lover can't judge a book By looking at the cover.